I'm Richard, and welcome to Acid Torque's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 3rd, 2014. Join us this week as we talk with historian Jim Dawson about his book, Los Angeles' Bunker Hill, Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets and Film Noir's Ground Zero, and how this lost neighborhood has infiltrated the collective consciousness of film buffs the world over. We'll also visit with Navajo photographer Pamela J. Peters, whose most recent project focuses on the legacy of relocated Native Americans in mid-century downtown Los Angeles, evoked through contemporary images in the spirit of Kent McKenzie's 1961 film, The Exiles. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir, Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown, The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 3rd, 2014. This week, our guests will be Jim Dawson. Jim Dawson is author of Los Angeles' Bunker Hill, Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets, and Film Noir's Ground Zero. We're also going to talk with photographer Pamela J. Peters. She has an, a project which has just been shown recently downtown. It is about relocated, displaced American Indians in downtown. This is a project inspired by an epiphany she had while watching the Kent McKenzie uh, 1962 film The Exiles at the Hammer Screening Room in 2007, which I was one of the uh, uh, MCs person leading the discussion after the film. So, so 
we we had we had, right I had to go interview her right and, and let people know that I'm you know doing my part in facilitating epiphanies and culture raising cultural awareness so so get excited it's going to be a lot of fun Kim I think it's time to remind people of the Pishka and I just as I say that I just can't help but miss our our friend thoroughly modern Millie. Yes, our friend, thoroughly modern Millie of La Mirada, who uses more Yiddish than anyone this side of my grandmother, actually. She, she uses words I've never heard before. It's delightful. Uh, the Pishka is the digital tip jar that's associated with this podcast, and we're always grateful for contributions from listeners who want to help fund our excursions into the Southland, looking for wonderful people to talk to for you to listen to. Never obligatory. Always appreciated. You can find a PayPal link on this podcast page. Thank you, Kim. Let's just let's go straight into closely watched trains. So our first, our first closely watched train this week is the. Oh, let me let me get the full title right. Yeah, you want to get the full title right of a place that'll be closed down by the time they hear this. The Los Angeles Police Revolver and Athletic Club Cafe at the Police Academy in Elysian Park. By the time this podcast airs, kaput will be closed. Yeah. Um. You know, it's it's not like they really marketed it to the wider community, and I guess they have fewer and fewer recruits at the academy, so a complaint uh, filtered its way up to the top that they just weren't making enough money to justify having this wonderful 1970s-style retro diner with counter service um, operating on site right around the corner from Dodger Stadium. So they're shutting down with absolutely no plan to reopen, although they do intend to put some money into redoing the kitchen, so that's a little weird. They're going to bring food trucks to their parking lots instead. And uh, that's the end of kind of a cool way to hang out with cops and uh, be surrounded by Jack Webb memorabilia. Now, you want to do that stuff, you're going to have to try a little harder and not go to a Belasian park anymore. They uh, brass knuckles. They have displays of brass knuckles. That was one of my first memories of going out into Los Angeles, was going there as, as, a, as a young teen and seeing the brass knuckles. Kim, um, you know what? Duck Girl is needed. Duck Girl? Duck Girl? Sharks have been sighted in the canals of Venice. Yeah, Richard thinks I'm Duck Girl because when I was very small, like around four years old, uh, somehow I ended up swimming in the canals in Venice. My, because, because my fa- father thought it was a good idea. He didn't throw me in. He just encouraged me to froth around. And anyway, uh, I did develop a terrible bacterial infection. I was hospitalized. I hallucinated. And somehow I survived. And so I have these... And, and, they, and they told your father... What? They don't know what we don't know what's wrong with her. No, no, I was supposed to die. And so Richard has determined that it's it's from some sort of duck bacillus that I was inoculated with in, in, in anyway. Um I'm Duck Girl. That's where my superpowers come from. And Duck Girl is kind of concerned to discover that there are leopard sharks that have found their way up into the Venice canals and they're swimming around and people are taking pictures of them. I'm glad there were no leopard sharks when I was Quacking around. In Kim, the there, there, there were no, yeah, there, there were no leopard sharks in in the 1970s. So, Kim, you know, it's kind of exciting. The Los Angeles Times is implementing. We're yet to see, but they've just announced. No, they did it. it. They did it. They did it. Oh, there are no comments on any LA Times articles. They've they've cleared the slate. They've gotten rid of all those awful comments. Oh, they're bad. And they, would, they have a trust metric now, and no one's commenting. <laughs> right, so I was going to mention that they've implemented, they were about to, or they ha- they just have implemented it, a trust metric. Uh, a trust metric is a 
algorithm by which people are allowed to participate in an online community based on their past behavior. So karma, so, a la Reddit. What what year did you suggest this to the LA Times in one of those weird meetings we were at? We we, we back in two thousand six, I believe, had had a meeting with the Los Angeles Times about the notion of implementing a, a proper trust metric well, I by, by the guy that invented them. think about it, you know? I, take eight years and think about it. The interesting thing, though, of course, is that while uh, implementing this new commenting system, they've decided to, as I said, wipe clean the slate of every comment anyone has ever put on the LA Times uh, website. So if you've you know, corrected an article, you may want to go back and do that again with your, your newly minted um, karma-free account because there is no uh, institutional history on the website of the LA Times. I hope this is going to be an improvement, though, because those were some of the w- most racist comments I've ever seen in my life. Any article about anyone non-white just turned into a horror show. Trust metrics are good. Yeah. Kim, Jeff Palmer, my favorite developer downtown... <laughs> you mean is- the guy who knocked down the last Victorian on Bunker Hill? The one that somehow survived way over in the corner and... They yeah. knocked it down yeah. accidentally. That guy. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. he's going to open up a big apartment complex across from the United Artists, what's now the, the Ace Hotel. They're going to be on the east side of the street, and the, the UA, United Artists Ace Hotel, is on the west side of the street between 9th and 10th, and that, that should prove to be um, a beautiful addition to that part of the world, right next to the Burns costume shop, I guess. I guess that that mural on the Burns costume shop is going to be saved. Yeah, they're somehow going... I mean, it's odd to think how they're going to save the Banksy because you can't really see the Banksy if there's a building next to it. I guess you can go into the Banksy alley and see the park Banksy. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a huge development. It's actually... It continues south more than a block. It is not in the Tuscan style to which we have become accustomed for these awful Jeff Palmer developments, which, by the way, um, my understanding is they are the most robbed of the downtown apartments. There's been a, a real... That, that was some time ago, but... Um, oh, we, we, we have pussycats misbehaving. We're going to no. stop for a second. No, no, no way. Cats going into fireplaces? This won't do. No. Okay, back to the Jeff Palmer Tuscan thing. Uh, He's built these compounds all around downtown L.A., and they they do have this sort of Tuscan castle-like quality. They all feature unrented ground floor retail, strangely slanted walls, spikes. They're they're, they're castles. They look like castles. Yeah, they have spiky... um, sort of sills. They're, it's they're, called crenellation. Kim. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the crenellation. I'm talking about the spiky sills at ground level so no one can sit down or lay in front of the windows in the non-rented retail. So now... Okay, um, hey, Kim, we're I'm done. Rambling, I'm rambling. Done. Thank you. Okay. Super but this t- is not Tuscan. That's the point. And, and this is interesting because now people are developing on Broadway for the first time and they're attempting to fit into this... Bozar. Thank you. This Bozar style. I learned, I learned that from the, the director of the Los Angeles Conservancy, Linda Dishman. She told you about the Bozar? It's Bozar. That's, That's the predominant style on Broadway. Yeah. Bozar. She taught me that. Okay. And, and to build now on Broadway, you're supposed to replicate these styles. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, let's stay tuned and see if any modern contemporary architects are capable of 
measuring up to John Parkinson and company. Kim, the Delray that that stick, the Delray is just uh, just south of Commerce. The Delray is an ancient steakhouse. It's in Pico Rivera. Pico Rivera, yeah, that's just it's it's southeast of, of Commerce. It it got a new sign. They they took down their old neon. Yeah, they took down their old neon, and, and I'm I'm glad that we're a Steakenstein family when it comes to Pico Rivera, old we, school we, we eating. We actually are vegetarian, so we don't go to either of them. But we, Yes, we do. We stop at Steakenstein, and we have beer, and we have onion rings, because they bring you onion rings in a giant silver vat, and they serve them to you with tongs. They they do. They do, and and onion rings are a vegetable. Um, the Dalray, it, it's an interesting Dalray. It's an interesting thing because uh, they they took down this fabulous neon sign. They replaced it with a you know very mediocre, brand new backlit plastic sign. And I posted that on the Facebook, and someone said, "Oh, they must not have known that their sign was special. Someone should have told them." And then I brought that up with Nathan Marzak, our our neon sign historian pal, and he said, what? I, I dropped a thousand bucks there at my birthday party and everyone at the table told them how great it was. And I was like, mm, you've been back since? Nope. So they knew how great the sign was. They didn't care. They thought that a new sign would attract more people and maybe the kind of people they want to attract are going to be more interested in a brand new backlit plastic sign. What kind of world do we live in? It's a, it's a racehorse. Doll Ray. It it's is? a racehorse, yeah. It's named after a racehorse. Yeah, well, the, the horse is dead, too. Okay, Kim. Just uh, Charles Fletcher Lemus is on our mind a lot, and I'm I'm really happy to see you sent me this note, uh, uh, a post. The Living Museum at Sycamore Grove. They're a group of activists, tour guides, curators. They're they're giving. They sound like our kind of people. Oh, uh, it's, uh, it's great. So they're just creating a series of inner of of, of tours around. The Southwest Museum down at, at Casa, de, Casa de Adobe and just all around that that wonderful arroyo and too numerous to name and I don't want to I, I don't want to dwell on it because I want to keep moving I just want to call it out it's great it's going to get people out to that little to that little hill and that little canyon out there and get them thinking about Charles Fletcher Lummis and how important it is and uh, raising consciousness because thoughts have wings. Right, and it's uh, part of this new rebranding of the Southwest Museum and, and Lummis House as well that's being done within the community because they've decided that they just don't like how the Autry Museum is, is treating its stewardship of the Southwest, this very old collection of American Indian artifacts. It is, in fact, L.A.'s oldest museum. And the community activists believe that they have the power to generate enormous tourist dollars and, and curb appeal, if you will. So they're just doing it themselves. And, and let's see what happens. We're doing our part to help get the word out. We think that cowboys and Indians can coexist, and we'd like to see that happen. That was that was funny, Kim. I didn't see that one coming. Kim, I just want to wrap this up. We're going to leave this as a th- as a thought exercise for people. Uh, there's a, a nice little uh, essay about what California can do or will do to get its redevelopment agencies back. Um, Governor Brown uh, terminated them uh, at the beginning of 2013, and they're not coming back anytime soon. It's really the way... All municipalities have undertaken major uh, uh, funding projects for infrastructure. 
and maybe that's a slight overstatement, but only slight. Anyway, they're gone. Well, I mean, not freeways, but in terms of... Municipalities. Okay. Freeways are funded by the state or federal... Anyway. Essentially, uh, it's how all these wonderful downtowns have been rendered yeah. completely interchangeable. Ugh. Right. So so they're gone, and just a, a general discussion of what people are thinking about, and it doesn't look like they're coming back anytime soon, and I can't say I'm sorry to read that, and I will just go read it. It's interesting. It's interesting to live in a post-CRA world. I think all the old buildings, I think we've bought ourselves 10 years. If we work really hard for the next 10 years, whatever they figure out to replace the CRAs with, the old buildings may still have a chance. So so read that and and meditate on what it means to be concerned about old buildings and why you should care. And I think at this point, Kim, we have to start looking ahead to upcoming events. Well, yes, but I just wanted to interject because I don't think you're aware of this yet, but um, Governor Brown has filed papers to to run for governor again. So perhaps he has some ideas on making sure we don't get these CRAs back again. I hope so. Interesting. All right, well, Kim, let's just start looking ahead to interesting lava events coming up. Uh, Coming up on Sunday, the 9th, it will be the 20th anniversary of Charles Bukowski's death. And um, we're going to do a little event at the King Eddie Saloon. And we're super excited. Um, let's see. Let me, uh, just off the top of my head, get our, our list of poets together who will be honoring Charles Bukowski on, on uh, Sunday, March 9th, which event starts at 6 p.m. And these are poets who all knew and worked with him. Right, so it's a really Fred, special... Fred, Fred, Fred Voss has to go to work at 4.30 in the morning, and, and he has well, to read. Well, school night. So, so he, he's a machinist, so he, we're starting a little... What people say, it's a little early. It's like... Come on, it's Sunday have, night. You'll show up at you 6. You have to hear What's Fred. Where Fred's, else are you going to be? Fred's the best. So Fred's reading. Fred's Fred wife, Voss. Fred Voss. Joan Job Smith, his wife. Oh, she's, she's a firecracker. Dan Fonte. S.A. Griffin. Suzanne Lemus. Wow, those are some heavy hitters. I think in that order, too. Maybe not, but uh, in general. So they're going to bring their books. You want to come on down, bring some cash, buy one of their books, support your local poet. Remember Charles Bukowski. They're all going to read Bukowski poems or poems of theirs inspired by Bukowski. There, There will not be a dry chair in the house, I promise you. So... Very informal, just pulled this together in the last couple days, very excited, and we hope to see you there. There's no no RSVP, nothing, nothing, nothing. No just cover sh- charge, just, just, just show come. Up. Okay, good. The next, set, actually a week later, we have a, a crime lab. A crime lab uh, with Frank Girardeau, who is a senior editor at the Pasadena Star News, and he's going to be talking about the Clark Rockefeller case deeply weird case of a, a German immigrant who reinvented himself as American royalty. Uh, killed a few people along the way, it seems like. Kidnapped his own kid, caused a lot of trouble, and would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for, well, a little bit of trace evidence. And uh, you'll hear all about it. You'll also hear at the uh, Lava Crime Lab about some of the cases in San Gabriel crime lore that... Um, Frank has covered during his 20-plus year career on uh, this crime beat, cases that really resonate with him, things that you probably haven't read about, not terribly famous cases, but the kind of things that keep him up at night. And if you ever wanted to know what it was like to work the crime beat on a, a relatively small paper in a big municipality like Los Angeles, you're going to really enjoy this crime lab. And for the first time ever, we've never done this before, but I thought it would be fun, um, over on the Lava Facebook page, 
uh, facebook.com slash lava transforms. You can find, oh, you're looking at me, Richard, because you never look at Facebook. You can find um, a way to enter a raffle to win a ticket for this event. And uh, you'll see a few opportunities to help us get the word out and get a chance at a free ticket yourself. So if you haven't been able to come to these Crime Lab events because they're just a little beyond your means, maybe luck will shine on you. Luck has nothing to do with it. But Kim, that's great. Um, one more event I want to call out. The end of this month, March Sunday, March 30th, is our Lava Sunday Salon. Tom Sitton, whom I've just uh, been in communication with today, super excited about his talk about oh, probably the top 10 or 15 most crooked politicians in the county and the city of Los Angeles between 1850 and 1950. Will there be trading cards available? There, there, there will not be trading cards, but it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're very excited about that. Kim, you and Paul Rogers take the second presentation. You two are going to split the time. You're going to talk about your novel, writing your novel, I guess publishing your novel, the 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 path of of, of starting an imprint, maybe yeah, a, a, a I'm, sentence I'm, or two. I, I, I'm going to talk about a few of the kind of interesting things that have transpired during the inspiration, the writing of, and the creation of the Kept Girl, my my mystery novel of 1929 LA, and hmm, maybe we'll even bring some of that funky footage from the printing of the book. I think everybody likes to watch. Factory footage, I know I do. Uh, you're, you're talking really softly, and you have to stop that. And <laughs> I'm you, almost done. Um, you, you, we can't show footage because we don't have amplified sound. I don't want sound. You don't, Okay, well then that's fine. I just think people might like to see the folding machine in action. I know I was completely captivated watching this. Ah, uh, the folding machine, a hot topic of contention lately. Yes, the folding machine is very interesting. So, Kim... Thank Richard. you. We're going to move on. We're going to move on to the interview. So I have to start introducing our interview, our interviewees Would properly. Would you please do that? Okay. So these nice people have been so patient. We're going to interview Jim first. So I'm going to introduce Pamela first. So it's fresh in your mind. Okay, Pamela J. Peters. So Pamela J. Peters shows up at the Hammer. It's 2007. She's been in Los Angeles. I think maybe. Five or six years, she'll talk about this in the interview. She's raised on a reservation in in uh, Northwest Arizona with by her grandparents. Uh, she comes to Los Angeles. She's like, ah, my God, this is so different. She comes to the screen of the Exiles. Silver bullet in her forehead. Wow, this is my parents' experience. This was my parents' experience in Los Angeles on Bunker Hill. This is this is an actual. This is a film that actually portrays. Native Americans, as Nate, I mean, this is like this. This is this. This this film has verisimilitude. This film has resonance, and I really, I'm gonna go to art school. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna change my life about this film. So just it's, and and this is interesting because you know you and I look at this film as this this incredible time capsule of the end of Bunker Hill the residential community that was seized by the CRA and leveled. And, we, and we're so excited to see all that Main Street footage. And it's such a different experience for um, someone who grew up on a reservation to look at that film and, and really see what it's talking about in terms of the American Indian experience. It's such an important movie. I'm so glad it's been restored and is being seen. Yeah, so it, pa Pamela's great. And so she, has, she recently has released to the world a project of hers Exiled Indians. Uh, it showed at the 118 Winston Street Gallery briefly at the beginning of the year, and it is about 
a modern take on relocation and exile of Native Americans who come from the from reservations and and come to Los Angeles to live. It's absolutely great, and as a a a very strong tie-in, our our first interview will be with Jim Dawson. Let me get the title of his book right, because even Jim couldn't get the subtitle of his book right. Jim Dawson has re- <laughs> couldn't. I know the feeling. <laughs> um, Jim Dawson has recently published a fantastic book. It is called Los Angeles's Bunker Hill, Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets, and Film Noir's Ground Zero. This is a book about Bunker Hill and film noir. So Jim is going to talk about three films which really exemplify film noir, three films which really give us an insight into the Americans, the part of the American psyche that loves to be scared, that loves to be macabre, that loves... Norman Bates's mother mummified in the closet, right? All these things, all these these dark parts of our of our emotional half acre. A big part of that is Bunker Hill. He's going to talk about that, and of course, one of the films he's going to talk about is The Exiles. So we're going to get a very rounded uh, approach to The Exiles, looking at it from uh, Native Americans. Uh, their history with the uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the relocation programs from the 50s and 60s, American Indians today coming to Los Angeles. In the context of Kent McKenzie's The Exiles and then Jim Dawson's going to come at it from a totally different angle and talk about it in the context of film noir. So it's going to be fantastic, and let's take it away with my interview with Jim. Jim, Jim, I'm here with you. We're at Skylight Books. I want you to introduce yourself and tell us about your book about Bunker Hill and film noir. Right. I'm Jim Dawson. We're here at uh, Skylight Books in Hollywood, and uh, I'm the author of uh, at Los Angeles's Bunker Hill, film noir's Ground Zero, and Pulp Fiction something. I have to go back. I have to, I have to look at the guy. Sub subtitles are unimportant. Oh, Don't worry. Okay. All right. So. You've written this... No, we're not going to start all over again. That was perfect. Okay, so you have this book, Bunker Hill, Film Noir. It's really simple, Jim. I'm going to start... I'm going to keep track. You're going to tell us three films that define Film Noir and Bunker Hill. And at the end of your three to four minutes on each of these films, by the end of the three you, you, you explicate, we're all going to have a better and deeper understanding of how... Bunker Hill and Film Noir are inseparable, mm-hmm. which which makes that a pretty big part of the emotional landscape of the American psyche. So, don't get too nervous. Okay. Pressure pressure's on. That's, so, that's okay. three. Right. Start with the first film. I'd have to say one of the most remarkable films just uh, made anywhere, but this was made on Bunker Hill mostly was Joseph Losey's M. It was shot in 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 the summer of 1950 released in 1951. It was shot uh, on Angel's Flight. It was shot in the tunnels. It was shot up, up uh, shot in an old, old house up on uh, Bunker Hill Ave- Avenue. That, uh, the, and, Minnewaska. Hmm? the Minnewaska. The Minnewaska. But there was also uh, the, a house called the, the, the Foss Heindel House. Oh, yes. And, and that was where the killer, the, the, it was a child killer, that's where he lived. In, uh, and, and the house perfectly... Uh, it, it was a sort of a correlative for who he was. It was this 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 man who was suffering this Victorian 
guilt put up on, on him by this by his evil mother, and this house looked like some strange Victorian witch, and I'm certain that the, that when when Alfred Hitchcock had Robert Clatworthy design the 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 Norman. Bates house for Psycho that they looked at this house. Anyway, the interesting uh, thing... We're, we're repeat the name of the house again, because this is very important. Okay, it was called the Foss Heindel House. It was at 315 South Bunker Hill Avenue. And uh, a couple of things interesting about him. Number one, his uh, uh, Joseph Losey's assistant director was Robert Aldrich, and when he went back a couple of years later to shoot Kiss Me Deadly, he used many of the same places uh, you know, uh, Angel's Flight. Uh, he he used the, um, the the castle, which was just two doors down from the Foss Heindel house. He used the tunnel and the stair. There, the, these long these long stairs by the um, Third Street Tunnel on the west side. But anyway, um, the restriction that he had when he remade M, which of, which of course had originally been a German film, a 1931 film with Peter Lorre, was that that he had to stick to the original script. So since the early film had been shot mainly at night on a soundstage, he wanted, the one thing he wanted to do to sort of separate it from the German film, the Expressionist film, was to shoot it realistically. And so he shot it during the day on Bunker Hill, which was this old neighborhood, and, and, and he felt that sort of reflected what... America was all about. He, he felt that, that America was still stuck in its Victorian past. It still had all these hang-ups, sexual hang-ups. So uh, he basically, so for him, Bunker Hill, this old neighborhood, really represented the America that he wanted to sort of show in, in this film, which was a, a, a repressed America. Perfect. Two. Number two. Probably uh, a, a second most impressive film is called *The Exiles*, and it was a sort of a, n- a neo-realist uh, look at a group of Indians uh, based on their true c- characters. Um, uh, a, a guy named Kent um, McKenzie, uh, uh, who had already shot in 1956, he had gone up and shot a short documentary on a lot of the pensioners that lived on Bunker Hill. So he went back in uh, 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 the, the late 50s, and he, he befriended a lot of these uh, Indians from Arizona, some, some were from uh, an Apache tribe, and some were from other tribes, and they were all through, through some federal program. A lot of them were living in this slum up on Bunker Hill. So he, he um, sort of followed them around, and he started writing this script, and they were sort of helping him, and he, it was basically sort of a fictionalized uh, look at their lives, but, but and he followed them over the course of about 14 hours of one night. And uh, he shot it not just in uh, and, and around Bunker Hill. We shot it other, other places at um, Main Street bars and things like that. But, but he basically captured the sort of the grittiness of Bunker Hill in about 1958. The th- and it's kind of funny when you watch this film. It's so well done. You might think this is a documentary. You're not quite sure if it's if it's fiction, if it's not fiction, and you never really know. Mackenzie never told in, in, anyone, and uh, the the people that uh, who are in it were who they you know who were they 
played who they actually were. I should say that. Uh, another film. No, number the third film. The third film, and it's very hard to find. I've got it on a um, a bootleg. It's not too good. It was called Angel's Flight. And here again, it was shot in the early '60s and released several years later. Uh, we don't know if this film exists. The, the, the guy who, who managed to, to get the, the uh, negative of, of the thing died a few years ago. We don't know where the negative is. What happened was it was one of these low-budget films that was shot in bits and pieces. And uh, finally, I think some, some, uh, some uh, distributor got hold of it, and, and they aired it somewhere in the Midwest under some other title. And it, got, it was, you know... Uh, the film was basically stolen, but it was all shot on Bunker Hill. They shot it, uh, of course, Angel's Flight and uh, uh, the Sunshine Apartments and uh, up on Bunker Hill Avenue. And it was about a serial killer, but it was a girl. The actress's name was? The actress's name was... Uh, I can't think of her name offhand. I'll introduce her name in the podcast, so don't worry. Keep moving. On the subject of women in the film, though, I don't want to lose track. Anne Richards makes a cameo in the film, but we'll get back to that. Okay, so we have a female serial killer whose name I've already told people when I introduce this podcast. Keep going. Okay, so anyway, anyway uh, she had been raped on the stairs behind the Sunshine Apartments, and, and she was still... Uh, reliving this over and over, so she was tempting men. She was uh, uh, Bunker Hill actually played itself in in this film, and you see a newspaper that says the Bunker Hill murderer, the serial killer. They didn't know who this person was, and she would she would cut their throats, and so uh, it was shot pretty much. It was shot in, uh, I think, just about just about everything was shot on Bunker Hill itself. So you really marinate in the atmosphere of this old neighborhood. The, the film has this real greasy, sleazy quality to it, which is really tasty, you know, as, as you're watching this thing. And I just hope that someday somebody gets hold of all those elements and can put this film out the way it should be presented. The, 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 the homepage of my computer is Indris Arthur, Indris Arthur is the name of the actress. And the, the, the home screen for my computer is in, 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 Indris, is in Indus, is Indus Arthur's rear end in the strip, in, in, in the strip club. That's, that's the home screen for my computer, just in case anyone's wondering. So, so Indus Arthur. I should also point out that Indus Arthur was a harpist. In fact, I, I have a tape of, 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 some, of, her, of a, some of her harping around. <laughs> and she does play a real harpy in this film, I should, should point out. Anne Richards. Anne Richards makes a cameo in this film. Anne Richards, the singer, I uh, think she was married to Stan Kenton, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. And uh, she later shot herself, something that, 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 doesn't quite, that doesn't happen very often with women. She, yeah. she killed herself. Uh, I have one of her albums. I have to say I'm, I'm not very impressed with Anne Richards. Her stuff didn't strike me as... But anyway, and, and Indus Arthur died fairly young. She died of, of cancer. Probably the only film uh, uh, that she's really fairly well known for 
was Mash. She 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 played one of the secondary characters in, in the film. I, I have seen her in like a, a couple of TV dramas. She was in a, a Perry uh, Mason, but you know, but she was just you know it was sort of an actress that uh, she made a few films. Didn't but but this one, she's she's perfect for it. And and Anne Richards, of course, sings, performs in the film, yes, the yes. theme song to the film, which is always my favorite yeah. part of it. Angels fly. Wait, 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 please start that again with the microphone on you. Okay. Angels fly. Unfortunately, the, somehow the end of the film got lost or didn't get made or something because, you know, they were shooting that thing on the fly. They, they had to shut down production a couple of times because they were shooting without per- permits and... and um, I still have to get the full story behind all this, but anyways, so when they when they put the film together, they took the the opening uh, credits with the song, and then they just have tacked it on to the end. So you hear this song. It's not a very good song. It's recorded. It sounds like it was recorded in a garage somewhere, maybe at the bottom of a well. <laughs> okay, you 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 did it. You've given us three films. Yeah. I need you to wrap this up. I really need you to explain to us when we think of film noir why you cannot se- why you cannot separate film noir from Bunker Hill and, and why that's important. You know, Bunk, uh, uh, a film noir came along at just that period, right after the war, when when uh, these these new cameras allowed people to go out on the streets and shoot. And finally, by breaking away from the studio, they were able to go out and tell these stories and with a with a, a, a verisimilitude that was sort of that, ha- that we hadn't seen since the, the days of the silent films. And uh, because film noir sort of told the story of the underbelly of America, it needed a place that was sort of down on its heels, but very atmospheric. And Bunker Hill was perfect. It was this hillside neighborhood with all sorts of had uh, had a couple of funiculars. It had all these stairways and these old rambling hotels, Victorian houses, and uh, winding streets. And it was just and even inside the hotels, you would have all these. The, the, you'd have this the, the, this labyrinth of, of, of stairways and stairwells and hallways. So it was just it was a perfect location for film noir. Jim, you did it. Tell us the, the, the title, not necessarily the subtitle. Tell us the title of your book again. It's called Los Angeles's Bunker Hill. Now, let me try the subtitle because it, I have to think about it. Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets and Film Noir's Ground Zero. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Kathy Schultz. I'm here in the Museum of Death, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. We're at 118 Winston Street, and I want you to quickly introduce yourself and tell us why we're here, and then we'll, we'll jump into the deep end and, 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 and get, get it, find out about everything. My name is Pamela J. Peters. I am Navajo, and we are here at 118 Winston Street at my first exhibit of my photography called The Legacy of Exiled Indians. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. We're going to take a breath. We already, we already talked about this. We're going to start with your aha moment. 
which is which is going to give us insight into what this show is about and and, and the motivations for it. So let's, and this is great because this aha moment involves me peripherally. So you, we're we're at the Hammer. It's 2007. The screening. It's a screening of the Kent McKenzie film, The Exiles, which is 1960. Thank you, 61. Take take it away. We're we're in the Hammer. It's a beautiful theater. My aha moment actually happened when I saw The Exile for the first time at the Hammer Theater um, back in 2007. I saw the film, and it just really resonated with me. It really made me appreciate that this particular filmmaker could create an honest, realistic imagery of who we are as American Indians, especially at a time when Hollywood was depicting us with various different stereotypes. And I really just love the the neorealism of this particular film and it just stuck with me it, it, it just stuck with me and I couldn't let it go and I wanted to buy the movie immediately and I, I just thought there was so, so much beauty in the film perfect let's talk about the film for just a couple more minutes because that will give us the, the setting the background for which for us to go back even further so tell us about this film which is set on Bunker Hill in 1961 which is just, just a little northwest of us here on Winston Street um, the, the film is about various different tribal in, um, young adults that came to Los Angeles through the relocation program during the late 50s. And it's about their journey coming to the city and how they have to reacquaint themselves with their new environment. And it's also about them, you know, living the lives that they lived in their 20s. And for me, that's kind of what happened to me. And I think with because of that, it kind of aligned with my story of what happened with me coming to Los Angeles. I was young, I came out here, and I was getting reacquainted with the city. And it was just beautiful that I saw this on the screen, and I could really relate to the characters because that was the life I lived. And they were not stereotypical Indians that you see in films. And I think because I saw, like, Images like my parents could have been, because my parents went through relocation as well. I really thought it was just a beautiful, poetic kind of a film. Perfect. Okay, so we agree we're going to do a little little backstory. So you've just said it, it clicked with you. So now we're going we're gonna to have you take us back and, and, and expl- tell us exactly how it was, what clicked with you for your life. The film with me... In my journey of coming to Los Angeles, it clicked with me because I, I remember when I came to L.A., I didn't know anybody, and I walked the streets, so everything was so new to me. I would look at the windows and see all these, the beauty of, 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 of everything. I mean, the, the jewelry, the clothing, and the glamour, and I was just like, wow, this is just so different from where I live on the reservation. And it was kind of what I saw in the film. I mean, you see this young lady wandering, you know, around the street looking at all the, the stores. And it was that was me. That's what clicked with me. Perfect. And just tell us briefly, you, you, you were raised on a Navajo reservation in no, northern Arizona. So just give us a little, little more granularity on that, and then we'll, we'll come back to where we are today. Um, I lived on the Navajo Reservation um, north of Shiprock, New Mexico, in a little community called Red Valley, Arizona. Um, I lived with my grandparents, very traditional grandparents, and they didn't speak English. I had to speak my native tongue with them while I lived with them. 
And it was just very slow. It was beauty. It was, it was, it was a beautiful upbringing. But I think I just wanted to have something more. And that's one of the reasons why I came to Los Angeles. Perfect. Okay. So we're, we're, we, we, we've got the aha moment. You've, you've watched the exiles. Now we're standing on the second floor at 118 Winston at an opening about about your photography and, and there's a there's a, a rough cut of a film you've made. So why don't you tell us about what where we are right now in this show and fill in the gap between two thousand seven and now. When I saw the Exile film, um, it just stuck with me. I, it, I had something inside me that just said I have to do something to tell, retell the story, but do it in an artistic, I guess in an artistic light with young kids and really give a, a story of really what what's going on with American Indians and how we're part of the history of Los Angeles. And I, I did it in this way with through my photography and through my filmmaking, and that's what I'm showing today is it's, it is a tribute. It's a, it's, we're, they're paying tribute to the first generation of relocated Indians that came out here during the relocation era of the late 1950s. That's perfect. That's you. You, you did it. Okay. You. You. Uh, no, we're, we're, we're. We're just. You did it. Good. I want. Um, before we go, I want you to tell people something about this exhibit that they might not. Sort of something that, that that you want to share with everyone before they come that they may not expect, or people that just don't know you. So just just something really that, that it really catches you personally about this exhibit. Um, what I really want people to walk away from this project is kind of get an idea of why American why American Indians came to Los Angeles and how we are part of Los Angeles. I mean, I was able to speak with a couple. Um, people today and they're like wow I didn't know this I feel educated that's exactly what I want people to walk away with I want them to understand that we are American Indians living in contemporary times we are various different tribes but there's a history of us coming to Los Angeles and we're part of Los Angeles and that's what I hope people will you know gather from this show perfect there's a rough cut of a film that that we're going to watch in a second What's that? That really begs the question. What's what's next? So I'm going to ask you, just as we end, what's next? What's next is I I really want to expand my my short documentary into a full documentary, and eventually I want to capture all the images that I've I've was able to capture with my seven subjects from different tribes, and put it in a in a book. Um, I've been asked by quite a few be- different people that they want to take this home and learn. And I want to use it maybe as an educational component of the history of Indians coming to Los Angeles. Perfect. Pamela, I I want to thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, my name is Philip Mershon. I'm here in the fabulous Victor's Restaurant, Hollywood, California, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 3rd, 2014. Our guests this week were photographer Pamela J. Peters. She was here to talk about her new project, Exiled Indians. And we also spoke with our good friend and author Jim Dawson. He is author of the book, 
Los Angeles' Bunker Hill, Pulp Fiction's Mean Streets, and Film Noir's Ground Zero. It was just, I want to thank you for listening to their interviews. Really nice, uh, d- both sides of the coin of, of, of Bunker Hill that I think we gave you. Kim, Richard. it's time to once again thank everyone for listening, which I just did, and, and encourage them to give us feedback. So if they want to get in touch with us, get into the, this loop, this positive feedback loop that we have, hearing from our fans, how can they do that? Well, they can send us an email at youcaneatthesunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. They can also come and see us at an Esoteric Bus Adventure or one of the Lava events, paid or free. And we're always happy to hear from our listeners, uh, some of whom have been getting on the bus because they've discovered us through the podcast, which is fun. Also, if you are an iTunes user, and you were inclined to give us a rating over there. That would be nice. You can just give us some stars. Ra- 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 rate us. Rate us. Say a few nice things. You know, you can also, if you've read The Kept Girl, review the book on Amazon. I'm happy to report four and a half stars and seven reviews as of this uh, speaking. And uh, that's not bad. Not bad at all. When I get ten, I get to submit the book to the Fussy Librarian. The Fussy Librarian is apparently a very good site to try to promote your book on. So I need three more reviews, folks. Make 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 it happen. Make it happen. Okay, Kim, we've got six upcoming bus tours to talk about. I'm going to talk about the first three. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. okay this go. coming weekend, we are we are off the bus. We have we have prior engagements otherwise, and we regret that. But of course, are always happy. Well, we'll have the Bukowski event. We, uh, but we don't. We're not on the bus this weekend. True. Okay. So, next bus tour Saturday, March 15. That is a Pasadena Confidential Crime Buster. That is with Crimebo, the Crime Clown. Black Masses. Petroglyphs. The Bomb. Love Cults. Poorly Behaved Chimpanzees. Worse Behaved Owners. Uh, Assassins? uh, Presidential Assassins. This tour has pretty much suicides. Oh yeah, suicide a variety of suicides. Um, this tour is everything, and and it has very wealthy people who should really know a lot better, but of course they don't because they have far too much time on their hands to get themselves into all this chicanery and then have to have other people extract them from it. So get on the bus; it's a lot of fun. The next bus tour is, yeah, that's right. It's West Adams. That's Weird good, West Adams. Weird West. Ad- that's a great bus tour. That bus tour. Uh, you know, recent, this, this bus tour features uh, the account of the kidnapping and the murder of Marion Parker. It's one of the many crimes on this tour. It's a neighborhood tour. We, we talk about all the different neighborhoods of West Adams. It's a lot of fun, so it's a nice way to really roll up your sleeves and get to know seven or eight different... Because when West Adams was developed, it wasn't developed as what we call West Adams today. It was a series of these little little neighborhoods, these small enclaves developed by four or five very wealthy men that went ahead and built these subdivisions with gates and racial covenants that and all this... a woman or two. Uh, I don't... Alvarado Terrace. Oh, yeah. No. no? Mrs. Doria sold she, it. Yeah, but she made you oh, hey, happen. I love Mrs. Doria. Don't get me wrong. Doria Jones. Utter genius. Coop. But she did not she develop. She didn't build the house. She did not develop Alvarado Terrace. She sold it to Powers Pomeroy. Okay, so if you w- ever wanted to know the history of the West Adams neighborhoods better, no better time than to get on our crime bus and learn about it in the course of some really macabre crimes. Someone uh, just said to us, 
someone was asking them about us, this third party. A fourth party was asking a third party about us, and the fourth party said, "Fourth party said, well, if they if they talk about Marion Parker, then they have to be together." And, and we the, do. And, and the third party asked us, "Do you do you talk about Marion Parker?" And we said, "Yes." And they said, "Okay, well then our friend said we we should we should trust you." So so there we go. And then of course the last tour of March, looking back to the uh, anniversary of twentieth anniversary of his death, twenty days earlier. Uh, Saturday, March 29, is my Charles Bukowski bus tour. And that's just a great tour. Uh, it'll be really great to do this so close to his anniversary. He's a giant in the Los Angeles literary scene. We're going to talk about his life. Maybe maybe Joan and Fred will get on the bus. Oh, you should invite them. That'd I be think, fun. I think, I think jo- Joan will get on the bus and she'll just cry about Clifton's. And that's okay, because it's all about emotion. So, Oh, Clifton's. Apparently, Clifton's has a new name. I what saw is, this what, in the what, downtown what news. It? Well, Clifton's still isn't open, but it has a new name. Its new name is Clifton's Cabinet of Curiosities. Submitted to you without comment. Let's talk about some more tours coming up. Hey, it's time for uh, The Real Black Dahlia on Saturday, April 5th, our most popular crime bus tour in the footsteps of Elizabeth Short, the um, sad semi-anonymous victim in what remains perhaps the most notorious unsolved murder in Los Angeles or even American history, the Black Dahlia murder. A really interesting tour about post-war transitory life and female culture in downtown L.A. Um, on Wow, we have a big gap here. We must be very busy in April. Two weeks. Yeah. Oh, Festival of Books. There's a lot going on. Uh, April 26th, it'll be The Birth of Noir, James M. Cain's Southern California Nightmare, a tour about some really wonderful noir films like Postman Always Rings Twice and Double Indemnity, about the great Mildred Pierce, about Joan Crawford and how hard it was for a woman to find a a toothy role like Mildred, and about um, the burial of... Infants by families that have just arrived in Southern California and the growth of the cemetery industry and the trains and and, and the vegetable yards and just so much good pulpy location uh, lore on that tour. We also have coming up on May 3rd, Blood and Dumplings, a crime bus tour in the San Gabriel Valley that includes a dumpling snack. And then if you shoot ahead a little farther into the summer, we have a Tom Waits bus adventure, which we do once a year. And if you're a Tom Waits fan or you love one, that's July 19, Kim. I know, but I like to get the word out. We don't do a lot of rock and okay, roll you, tours. you, you got to say the, the date or it doesn't mean that. July 19, we're going to be doing a Tom Waits tour, so get on the bus. Okay, good job, Kim. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. Between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Park, it is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine of fabulous oddities like roots.